following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, this is session number five of Sauron Defeated. We're back again after a, a, a two-week break uh, for the 4th of July and for Mythmoot. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so James, this is my Tolkien Society of Kansas City shirt uh, from my wonderful time at Middlemoot last year, which reminds me I have a Middlemoot-related announcement. Uh, so Middlemoot this year, which will be our third Middlemoot, uh, and it's going back up to Iowa this year, uh, is going to be on the 12th of October, Saturday the 12th of October, uh, and the call for papers has just been posted. So if you go to the Signum University website, you should be able to find information on Middlemoot and our call for papers, which is about art uh, in Tolkien. And Ted Naismith, the painter, the uh, painter of the very image that I am sharing on the screen, except not on GoToWebinar, but I will be in a second. That image is the one I'm talking about. Um, will be um, uh, Ted Naismith will be there. Uh, he'll be our guest this year. So uh, that's going to be super fun. So anyway, Middlemoot is a great, great time. Also, um, some uh, very strong stirrings in uh, for New England, the New England moot at last. We've been working on the New England moot, what seems like forever, but we're finally getting close. And we're looking now at, you can kind of pencil in the last weekend of September. That's what we're looking at. So hopefully maybe the leaves will be starting to turn up here uh, and we're going to be located in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, so Pretty as, as you know, as as near the middle of New England as uh, as uh, as as no matter. So uh, anyway, um, what more details on that will be coming soon? Maybe even as soon as next week. Uh, who knows? But um, anyway, so that's going to be uh, uh, that's going to be great fun. So I hope to uh, see some of you there too. It's we're we're now that we're past Mythmoot being you know Mythmoot being over is very sad because Mythmoot was awesome great to see uh, many of you there I see Chris here was there and Arthur of course was there um, uh, Stephen was there so uh, lots of uh, uh, great opportunities to uh, to to meet people and hang out with folks had a wonderful time uh, but of course we're entering into having passed myth moot now we're going to be entering into fall regional moot season soon and this fall we're looking at one two three five or six moots this fall so uh it's going to be a fun and busy time um so uh anyway uh, gonna be gonna be uh, gonna be great stuff coming up. Uh, I'm since I, I'm back and I'm gonna be uh, here at home for a while now, so we should not be interrupting class uh, again until sometime in mid-August. We'll be see. Oh yeah, of course, things come up sometimes, but uh, I'm not planning to be away until the second week of August. So should, we should be uh, uh, ready to go straight through until there. And all of the regular my regular broadcasts are back on this week. Uh, so that means, of course, Friday afternoon, I have my Grifflet stream on the Lotro official uh, channel on Twitch, uh, which is always a lot of fun. And then tomorrow night is our second official Thursday night session in our new day and time uh, for the Silmarillion Film Project. And we're going to be talking about casting. Um, 
discussing, uh, basically writing a casting call, essentially, for the new characters that we have not yet cast that are being introduced in season four. Uh, so if you have strong opinions, you know, on uh, who should play Orid, you know, what the character of Oridreth should look like, for instance, uh, you can totally, because I know lots of people have strong opinions about that. Um, Anyhow, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So that's tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Eastern time, uh, Thursday night at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Um, the we've <laughs> we've had another misfortune strike our attempt to do. So you may remember that the uh, Mythgard Movie Club was planning finally to talk about uh, the musical film Camelot, uh, which was originally scheduled for soon after we finished our Maori discussion. Um, uh, but we've had to postpone it again uh, due to some sort of technical problems. Uh, so no worries. We'll let you know when we're going to be rescheduling that. So um, it will happen. It will certainly happen, but it's not going to be quite yet. Um, so um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, great. So that, so that's the, so Thursday night film film and Friday afternoon uh, for uh, – uh, Grifflet, and I then back through the schedule again next week. So, all right, very good. And I, th- oh yeah, one other event that's coming up. Uh, I'm going to be giving a talk at uh, a big uh, Lord of the Rings Online event, uh, Weatherstock in game. Um, huge concert in game. It's a really fascinating experience. Uh, and I'm going to be giving a talk on Saturday the 20th at six o'clock. Um, which will be broadcast uh, both on the Signum Twitch channel. I think we'll be simulcasting it there, but of course it'll be hosted on the Lotro official channel. So uh, that should uh, that should be a lot of fun too. So anyway, that is uh, that is what's happening. Um, so all right, let's um, uh, get back into Sauron Defeated. So let me tell you. Let me let me confess off the top my plan here and my plan is this week to gracefully subside into being fully a week behind the schedule um the the epilogue uh is of course is a pretty fat chapter and i knew we were you know we as you will probably remember we didn't finish the scouring of the shire before which means we still have a bit of backlog to cover and i didn't want to um i didn't want to stop. Uh, I didn't want to do like a little bit of the epilogue and then stop. So we're, I'm, I'm just going to save the epilogue for next time. We'll do the whole next session on the epilogue uh, and then we'll move on to the Notion Club papers after that. So we're going to be, I'm going to be adding a week uh, in the schedule here for this. Not a huge deal. Uh, this is not unknown uh, waters for us, certainly. Um, but I think that'll work out best. So tonight we're going to be catching up and going through the Grey Havens. So we're going to get through what we all are accustomed to thinking of as the end of the Lord of the Rings. Though, of course, as we will see, not the end of the Lord of the Rings as Tolkien initially conceived it. Um, So, um, let us move forward, or rather kind of back a little bit. So you'll remember that the most striking, you know, no, I think it's safe to say the most striking figure um, uh, or feature, rather, of the scouring of the Shire as it was depicted uh, in that first draft, in that A draft, is the quite remarkable role that Tolkien gives to Frodo, right? How Frodo is the assertive one, even violent one, um, and how 
uh, urgent Tolkien seems to be about making sure that Frodo gets props in the Shire, right? Uh, and that he, you know, his return to the Shire is masterly. Um, uh, so anyway, we were, we we're looking at that. Uh, we got through the Battle of Cotton Farm, right? When the hobbits were involved, when the four hobbits were involved in a, uh, an unsurprisingly, or, or sort of what looked at first like, um, you know, a sort of an, a Norse mead hall defense, right? Where they were, uh, they were being surrounded and going to be burned in alive inside the house, right? Like kind of like you do right in a, in a Norse epic, uh, except of course they won. Um, uh, and you know, all of this like bloodshed in farmer cotton's house and outside in his grounds. Um, we already have, um, yeah. Dower handed Frodo indeed, Christopher. Exactly. Um, so, um, Anyhow, uh, we have already a, a, a bit of um, uh, uh, some alterations being made, right? Um, uh, but here's, here's when we finally get to... Uh, this is still the first time through. Uh, they've finished fighting at Cotton's Farm, right? And we're getting to Bywater. And we have the first encounter with the new Ted Sandyman, right? So leaving Pippin in charge on the road and Farmer Cotton in Bywater, Frodo, Sam, and Mary rode on to Hobbiton. It was one of the saddest days of their lives. The great chimney rose up before them, and as they came in sight of the village, they saw that the old mill was gone, and a great red brick building straddled the stream. All along the Bywater road, every tree was felled, and little ugly houses with no gardens in maybe desert of ash or gravel. As they looked up the hill, they gasped. The old farm on the right had been turned into a long, big workshop, or maybe building, with many new windows. Remember, Tolkien is writing this really fast, and Christopher's having a very hard time reading it. Uh, okay, the, the chestnuts were gone. Bagshot Row was a yawning sand pit, and Bag End up beyond could not be seen for a row of sheds and ugly huts. The following was struck out and replaced immediately. A surly, dirty, ill-favored hobbit was lounging at the new mill door. He was smut-faced and chewing. As good a small model of Bill Fernie as I've seen, said Sam. Ted Sandyman did not seem to recognize them, but stared at them with a leer until they had nearly passed. Going to see the boss, he said. It's a bit early, but you'll see the notice on the gate. Are you the folks that have been making all the row down at Bywater? If you are, I shouldn't try the boss. He's angry. Take my advice and shear off. You're not wanted. We've got work to do in the Shire now, and we don't want noisy riffraff. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, Arthur is suspecting that Tolkien really doesn't like Ted Sandyman. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm also getting that impression, Arthur, I have to say. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. You know, Stephen, I think that this is a really important thing to remember. In fact, Stephen, I would go so far as to say that's a really good take-home lesson. You know, what your comment here is a really good take-home lesson 
for all of us as we're reading not just this, but the whole history of Middle-earth, right? Um, Stephen says, seeing how much scenes like this change and improve as Tolkien revises them makes me think we should be very cautious about reading too much into some of Tolkien's later drafts with fewer rewrites. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. And I would say, again, the same of his earlier stuff as well. Um, now, the one thing I would, I don't know, maybe quibble with Stephen is, 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 is about reading into. I guess what I would say is we, we always have to keep this in mind, right? Um, and, you know, this is a kind of thought I've had many times about, on the one hand, how grateful I am to Christopher Tolkien for everything that he's given us in the history of Middle-earth series, but at the same time, like, I can't help but feel that his father would hate the idea of all of this unpublished draft stuff that he never got a chance to revise, that he left in an unfinished state, just getting trotted out there like that, right? Um, stuff that he would never have wanted to be published in the form that it's in. Um, certainly, definitely something worth keeping in mind. Um, you know, to me... I think it's, and this is one of the, you know, Stephen, it's one of the things that for me really informs the question, and it's a complicated one. One of the things that you come to see as you're studying this stuff, right, and, and especially as we're going through the history of Middle-earth, and, you know, we can see all of the different ideas that Tolkien had at different times, and the the ways in which his ideas shift and change over time, and, and stories develop, and he goes back, or doesn't go changes it but maybe doesn't change his ideas and all of those things and stuff it begins to really complicate the question i was just talking about this during my grifflet stream i think during the last one i had um it's it makes it really hard to answer what seem to be really simple questions right when people say things like what did Tolkien think about this issue? You know, this one issue, right? And it's like, well, gosh, when? You know, I mean, Tolkien thought five things about that at different times. Uh, and it's really hard to uh, to sort of nail it down, right? Or to just to give an answer to that question, which is a single answer. There's often really not a single answer, right? And so to sort of decide what is canon, right? Um, I mean, we can choose the published stuff, right? And that seems easy enough. Um, and generally, that's pretty much what I do. But what about the later stuff, right? What about the things which he was clearly reconsidering but hadn't put into a published form, um, but, you know, clearly the direction the story was going, you know? So, you know, do you try to take, do you take Tolkien's published ideas? Do you take try to find Tolkien's final ideas? Um do you just try to decide, uh, you know, do you look at his first ideas? It's, you know, it's, it's complicated. It's really hard. Um, but it is certainly true, Stephen, that when we consider, um, when we consider Tolkien's, you know, stuff in general, um, Tolkien's writing, right? It's very important to remember that a lot of the stuff that we get, especially uh, in the history of Middle-earth, never had the opportunity for uh, uh, for revision. Um, yeah, uh, and Mary, you're right. Uh, his languages are, of course, a rather extreme example of this, right? Uh, because he, the way that he kept fiddling with it, uh, it's it's exactly the same, right? I mean... It's like trying to answer the question, like, what is the Quenya word for, you know, it, it, it kept shifting around. You have to kind of choose, right, a moment to, to sort of freeze it. It's difficult. It's very difficult. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, yeah, and Tony, you're right. It also does include stuff that originated outside the canon and was later integrated, stuff like Tom Bombadil. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is the status of the original Tom Bombadil poem? You know, how much can we draw from that in order to try to answer questions about Tom Bombadil in The Fellowship of the Ring? Really, really hard uh, to know exactly how that works. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kate says that uh, the history of Middle-earth really makes clear why uh, Niggle was painting a tree that kept growing, right, in that story. Yes, exactly. We can, and, and, and to me, I mean, for all of the, these kind of interpretive challenges that the history of Middle-earth presents, the opportunity to sort of watch the tree growing is so worth it, right? Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. Uh, I'm just saying it, it makes it complicated, right? Um, but anyway, Stephen, you are... Um, um, you are right to be sort of recalling, right? That we have to be, we have to be careful in drawing too firm conclusions about, uh, uh, you know, like what Tolkien was thinking or something from some of these draft materials. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, yeah, Nancy says, I'm not convinced it's useful to try to answer questions about Bombadil at all, really. Oh, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Back to uh, Ted Sandyman here. Um, so the description, again, notice how it seems that uh, uh, a lot of the hardest to read passages, like the place where Tolkien was going fastest, is in his description, right? Um, I, almost as if, I, as we've seen before, he seems to be really kind of seeing this whole picture in his head. Right, and he's trying to get it all down as fast as he can uh, to capture this, you know, this image, right? Uh, the visual picture that he uh, clearly can see um, before it uh, before it goes. Uh, oops, sorry. Um, so interesting that Ted Sandyman doesn't recognize them, right? Um, Sam also doesn't acknowledge him in the sense of naming him for who he is on the spot, right? Uh, Sam instead notices that, um, you know, this is uh, a good, a small, as good a small model of Bill Fernie as I've seen, right? Um, so connecting him to Bill Fernie, noting that, you know, whatever Bill Fernie has seems to be catching and spreading even into the Shire, um, seems to Sam more important than, you know, commenting on uh, the identity even of, you know, his old antagonist from the Green Dragon back at the beginning of the story. And that in itself, I think, is really kind of interesting, right? Um, uh, that Ted Sandyman has been kind of remade into the Bill Fernie model. It is almost as if, and I'm not sure if this is quite fair to say, but it's almost as if Sam is... Um, Sam doesn't seem, well, I don't know. I, I guess we could take this in a couple different ways, right? We could take this as Sam seeing the, this, um, you know, the Bill Fernie mold as being like the natural end point, uh, of the path down which Ted Sandyman had always been going, right? Or 
we could see it as Sam saying that, again, it's like a contagion, right? That uh, um, the same the th- same things which corrupted uh, Bill Fernie have now corrupt- corrupted Ted Sandiman. And although he was annoying before, right, he wasn't this before. Um, as uh, sort of symbolized, right, um, uh, as symbolized by um, his dirtiness, right? Uh, the, the, his physical dirtiness, right? Ted Sandyman has been tarnished. He has been corrupted. Um, and Sam, the, my, the way I am most inclined to read it uh, is that Sam sees that first and foremost, that he's looking at this and he sees not like, ah, Ted Sandyman, I see your true colors have finally emerged in full, right? But rather, you know, the the marring even of Ted Sandyman, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Stephen says that Sam has learned not to waste an apple on him this time. Yes, indeed. Uh, Christopher, I agree that I think that the, the, the published text catches Sam's dialect better. That is certainly something that uh, Tolkien improves on revision here. Um, you know, we can hear a couple things, uh, you know, a couple of ways in which he's sort of trying to capture the voice of, of, uh, uh, of Ted Sandiman here, like uh, Sheer Off. Uh, for instance, right? Take my advice and shear off. Um, noisy riffraff is not so good, right? I think. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Brian, that's a really interesting comment. Brian says it also shows the growth in Sam's perspective. You know, Ted Sandiman was a big deal in the Shire, an antagonist of Sam, before they started. Now Sam recognized him as just another example of a type he's seen throughout his travels. Yeah, he now has a context for this, right? Um, I think that that's I think that that's true. Um, yeah. Okay. And of course, it's right after this that Sam picks him up and chucks him in the river, right, uh, to give him uh, uh, a mandatory bath. So uh, I didn't do that passage because we already talked about it. Um, but this passage. Uh, is the Ted Sandiman passage that really jumped out at me. And although, Christopher, I agree with you, I like the published Ted's, and uh, Stephen also, I like the published Ted Sandiman exchange better than that first one. This, I thought, was really nice, and I actually kind of missed this uh, in the published text. Ted laughed. You're out of date, Mr. Samwise, with your elves and your dragons. If I were you, I'd go and catch one of them ships that are always sailing according to your tale. Go back to Babyland and rock your cradle and don't bother us. We're going to make a big town here with twenty mills, a hundred new houses next year. Big stuff coming up from the south. Chaps who can work metals and make big holes in the ground. There'll be forges a-humming and steam whistles and wheels going round. Elves can't do things like that. Sam looked at him, and his retorts died on his lips. He shook his head. Um... So, I'm not saying that I love that speech, because there's a lot I don't like about the speech. Uh, But what I love, there are two things that I love here. First, we see here more of the rationale of Ted Sandiman, right? One of the things that I feel is lacking 
in the in the published text version of Ted Sandiman, right? Is that it's it's not completely clear what Ted's angle is, right? What does Ted like? What's he excited about? Um, why is he working with them? Why is he working for the men? Um, the comment that they make in the published text about, you know, Ted's, you know, serving the men, right, where his father was the miller in his own right and his own master, um, it seems pretty clear, right? Like, why would Ted be interested in, in uh, you know... Um, grubbing along after the ruffians who are running the place. You can say he's a bully and, and, you know, gets the opportunity to bully people. I'm not saying it's implausible, but what I'm saying is we don't really get that developed, right? We don't get any clear insight into what exactly we can, we, we can speculate, right? We can speculate something like that. Ted's a bully. He's a you know, by, um, uh, you know, by being a collaborator with the ruffians, he's enabled to bully people, um, but that's, it's not the bullying of folks that is emphasized, right? It's his grubbiness standing by this horrid new mill that has been built to replace uh, his, fa- his traditional family mill, right? That's the thing that's emphasized. Why does he like the new mill, right? What does he like about it exactly? What is, um, what is the cause of Ted's enthusiasm? It's, it's implied very briefly, right, in Ted's published comment about when he says that we have work to do in the Shire now, right? But, you know, there's a lot of unpacking that we have to do with that to try to get at, um, you know, to try to get to the heart um, of, uh, um, of, of all this. Uh, Yeah, Tony says, why is he making such a big mill for a small town? Exactly, right? It, you know, you need grist before you can grind, and there's no more for the new mill to do than the old, uh, says Farmer Cotton in the published text, right? So again, it makes, from the point of view, you know, the point of view that we get, you know, Ted Sandiman from, that is from the point of view of primarily our four companions and Farmer Cotton, he just looks like a fool. And he is a fool, no doubt. I'm not trying to contest that. But I'm just saying, again, like, we don't really get his perspective. This really um, shows it out much more fully, right? How excited he is about the big stuff coming up from the South. Ted Sandiman is excited because he is excited for progress, right? Progress. Uh, 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 Metals and wheels and forges humming and maybe steam whistles, right? Um... It's, this is going to be a big city. He's going to be a big man in the new big city, right? Because there's going to be a hundred new houses next year. Um, he's not just toadying to a group of ruffians who are exploiting the land, right? He sees himself as part of the next wave, right? Um, they're going to bring the Shire up to date. They are going to be moving ahead and we're going to get, you know, uh, uh, cities and uh, uh, wheels and forges and, uh, you know, uh, whips and muzzles and everything, right? Sorry, broke into the last battle there. Um, yes, exactly. Very Saruman-like, Tony. And again, we can see this much more clearly, um, what, what the rationale is, what exactly that Sarumanic infection is. Um, and it, Ted Sandyman is our only really clear example of that, right? I mean, the ruffians are a symptom, right? Uh, Lotho slash Cosmo is the central figure of the 
Saromanic infection, or at least he's the you know the conduit through which the Saromanic infection entered the Shire, but we never see him right ever. Neither in the draft nor in the published text do we ever get Cosimo other than you know, Cosimo slash Lotho, except from a distance, right? And people speculating, and you know Frodo can sort of step back and say that he sees the whole picture now and understands how Lotho was taken in. Um, so we can reconstruct Lotho's story from Frodo's reconstruction of Lotho's story, but it's not the same thing, right? It's not the same thing as seeing Ted Sandyman himself completely catching this Saromonic infection, right? Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, I, uh, um, I think that, um, that's something that I wish a little bit more of. Like, so, I don't know. Again, I wouldn't necessarily want all of this, um, but uh, something of along the lines of the big stuff coming up from the south that would have done that would do more than the published text does to explain why Ted Sandyman is so pleased about the new the the ugly new mill, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Stephen. This gives us a clearer glimpse, I think, into, as you say, the real horror that is the potential changing of the hobbits, not merely their enslavement. Yes, those who have been subjugated to the oppression, you know, by the oppression of the ruffians, are that's a that's bad, right? That's very bad. Um, but this is far worse. And again, Frodo says that in the published text, right? Um, that this is the worst loss. You know, this is, you know, what has happened to Taylor. They can only just hope that not too many have gone like him, right? Um, yeah. And Kate, that is a really interesting point. Um, that uh, what Ted Sandyman says here is also a kind of portent of Middle-earth without elves, right? Um, we're entering the dominion of men. And although, you know, progress, if progress it can be called, is going to be halted here in the Shire, uh, and the Saromanic project is not, in fact, going to prevail here, uh, and the Shire is going to be scoured, um, nevertheless, in the dominion of men, this is the direction that we're going. And again, notice, Kate, as I think you're, you're, you're uh, uh, focusing on here, elves can't do things like that, right? Or don't do things like that anyway. But even Ted Sandyman can see, even if he doesn't understand what he's talking about, right? His words are kind of, in that sense, perhaps, Kate, more true than he himself knows, right? He's merely scoffing at elves. He doesn't even believe in elves. Um, and yet what he says is kind of true, right? Elves, elves can't do things like that, right? Um, they don't think that way. They can't, they're, they're, they're not gonna do this. Men will eventually, right? Because of course we, there's some dramatic irony here. We know the truth, right? We know that this is in fact where the dominion of men is going to head, right? Um, uh, so yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, that element is, uh, is really, uh, um, interesting there. Um, yeah, both Tara and uh, uh, Yana are thinking at the same time that the steam whistle sounds anachronistic, uh, kind of out of place there. Very likely. Notice he's guessing. Christopher's guessing here. He's not at all sure that steam whistles is what the word is. Um, but um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that Tolkien would think of that and jot that in there. Um, 
you know, in this quickly written first draft would surprise me more if uh, he had uh, um, stuck with it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Tony, you're right. This is also a shadow of what happened to Numenor. Exactly. We, we've already seen Tolkien in his earlier stuff uh, thinking about this, writing about the, this, you know, sort of upward move in technological progress and downward slide uh, in moral culture, right, uh, in Numenor. So, you know, we know that this is uh, not something strange to him, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting, Brandon. I agree that Ted seems to see elves as old-fashioned, in a sense, right? We're, we're moving on past elves, Um one of the implications would clearly be like past believing in elves, right? Which is why the the world in which you believe in elves is baby land, right? That's for babies. Uh, those of us who have grown up and are moving forward have left that behind. Um, but uh, but I agree, it is fittingly characteristic of his view of things that he sees elves as kind of old fashioned. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, James, you're right. We will be back there in this book, won't we? To Numenor. That is. Um, yes. Now, uh, Nancy has a really interesting uh, point. Um, hang on, Nancy. Did you make an... I think... You, yes. You made a, a, an earlier comment here, too. Um, Sam. Uh, as Nancy points out, Sam does go to Babyland. Um, you know, if you look at it, you know... Um, if I were you, I'd go and catch one of them ships that are always sailing, according to your tale. He will. Go back to Babyland and rock your cradle. He will. He's 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 gonna be Sam is gonna be hip deep in babies, right, for the rest of his life. Uh, a heck of a lot, of, a, a large number of cradles. Uh, he's gonna be rocking here. Um, uh, so that's, uh, Nancy, that is really interesting. I, I, you know, I wonder if, uh, Tolkien was actually thinking in foreshadowing terms there. Um, that's, uh, but that's really, I, I hadn't thought of Babyland in that sense, uh, 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 Nancy, but that's really cool. I like that a lot. All right. But that's only one of the two things I love about this. The second thing that I love about it is Sam's lack of a response, right? Um, Sam's retorts died on his lips and he shakes his hand, right? Ted Sandyman is unanswerable, right? There is, there is no response possible to Ted Sandyman from Sam, right? Because Sam... And here, uh, Stephen, was it you? Were, I forget who was talking about Sam's growth as a character, right? And how we see Sam's growth as a character. I think this is another place that we see Sam growing as a character, right? Um, he has... Um, remember in that first scene back in the Green Dragon, the whole sailing, sailing, they're sailing away, um, when he sort of lapses into what sounds like reciting poetry right there in front of Ted Sandyman, right? Um, uh, the whole fact that he's debating Ted Sandyman, um, in the Green Dragon, um, and now he just... He just he, he just can't even, right? He won't talk because it's clear there's no point talking to him. Absolutely no point in trying to engage Ted Sandyman. Anyone who 
has brought himself to this point, right? There's no, there's no talking to him. There's no convincing him, right? His entire, the entire framework through which he processes reality, right, is other and fixed. And Sam's like, like, you know, there's nothing, there's no, there's really no point. Um, yeah, yeah. And Karita, I agree. I do think that that's, a, that's sad, right? I mean, even, I think even Sam is sad about that when he's shaking his head, right? Um, because that, that head shaking there is a kind of, you know, well, dismissal, not exactly dismissal, um, but kind of giving up, you know, sadly giving up on Ted Sandiman, right? It's just, yeah, no, there's no point. He's a lost cause. Exactly. Resignation is a really good word for it, Tony. That's, that's, uh, that, that's exactly right. Um, and Yana, no, we never do learn what happens with Ted. Uh, presumably in this version, he can swim and so doesn't drown. Um, but no, we never learn the end of Ted Sandyman's career, uh, in the published text either. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. This is worse than Mordor, said Frodo. Much worse in some ways. Ah, said Sam. It goes home, as they say, because this is home, and it's all so so mean and dirty and shabby. I'm very sorry, Mr. Frodo, but I'm glad I didn't know before. All the time in the bad places we've been in, I've had the Shire in mind, and that's what I've rested on, if you take my meaning. I'd not have had a hope if I'd known all this. I understand, said Frodo. I said much the same to Gandalf long ago. Never mind, Sam. It's our task to put it all right again. Hard work, but we'll not mind. Your box will come in useful. My box? said Sam. Glory and sunshine, Mr. Frodo, but of course. She knew. Of course she knew. She showed showed me a bit in the mirror. Bless her. I'd well nigh forgotten it. But let's find that boss first. Okay. Um, notice uh, the, um, once again, a trend of him putting down more and cutting out some, right? You know, the, the one of the main differences between this passage and the analog passage in the published text is that they say less, right? Uh, uh, they're just less explicit about all of these things, right? And this is, I think, a classic example of something that hasn't changed, right? Um, you know, when Sam bursts into tears at the sight of the felled party tree in the published text, um... I think that this is, I have no problem believing that this is exactly what he's thinking. All the time in the bad places we've been in, I've had the Shire in mind, and that's what I've rested on, if you take my meaning. I'd not have had a hope if I'd known all this, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Karita says, uh, the I'm glad I didn't know thing is a little too real. Yeah, I mean, no, this is, uh, this is very, um, this is very strong. Brian, that's a really good point. Brian points out that Frodo doesn't say, uh, that he also was still clinging to that vision of the Shire to get him through. Um, he speaks of sharing the same idea, but earlier, right? I said much the same to Gandalf long ago. He doesn't say 
that that was that all the time in the bad places we've been in, I've had the Shire in mind. He 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 had that idea, and of course we remember that uh, from chapter two, right? That you know he felt that as long as the uh, there was a firm foothold here, right, uh, in the Shire, uh, that you know then he can go on even even if he could not stand there again, right? So you remember that speech from the published text. <clears throat> but he doesn't say that he kept on feeling that, Brian. I think that's a really good point. Um, Brian suggests that he may already have had a sense that there was no going home for him. And of course, we could hear that in that same speech even, right, where he felt like he was his journey was going to be there and not to come back again. But see, that's not the same. I, I don't think that's evidence that he was giving up on it right away, because there he's imagining being an exile and continually on the run for the rest of his life, right? That's his fear, seems to be his fear at that moment. That sense of there can be no real going home for me seems to be something, I mean, if, if it seems to be something that comes to Frodo only much later, right? Possibly even after uh, the destruction of the ring and his incomplete recovery from that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony's wondering if he, if Sam thinks that he would have turned away from the quest if he'd known. I don't think that's the issue so much, Tony, because remember, he had the opportunity to do that, right? Um, in the mirror of Goadriel, um, he makes the choice at that point to stay with Frodo and not to go running home. So he'll go home by the wrong, by the long route or not at all is a choice he's already made. And I don't think there's any implication that he might have changed that. No, what he is suggesting is not that he might have turned away and come back, but that he might not have made it, right? That had he known that meanwhile, right, as they're there on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, right, while they're cowering, um, you know, he's standing watch over an almost insensible uh, Frodo while they're, uh, you know, have no food and almost no water on the last stretch of road to Mount Doom, getting ready to carry Frodo on his back and throwing his beloved pans down into the hole, right? Um, if at that moment he had known that Bagshot Row had been dug up and was now a sand and gravel pit uh, and, you know, I, and all of these things, right? If he had known this, if he had known that, um, would he have been able to keep going? That's what he's saying, that he doesn't know that, you know, that's what I've rested on. I'd not have had a hope if I'd known all this. Um, and remember his song, not the first song, the published song in the Tower of Kirith Ungol, right? He starts off remembering how off in the distance, right? Things are beautiful, right? Um, but then, of course, he is, you know, in darkness buried deep. And then he segues to defiance. Um, his defiance is not explicitly based on the beauty, you know, back home, right? But that seems to be part of it. Remember, he segues to his song from singing songs about the Shire, right? So, again, I think that we can see, I guess the way that I would say it, you know, in his song there and in, of course, the famous passage where he's looking up and seeing the star uh, in the sky of Mordor, um, we do see Sam perceiving a higher beauty, right? We do see Sam having Estelle, having faith uh, that the shadow cannot reach, um, you know, the, 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 the light and high beauty um, that is up beyond it. But 
his memories of the Shire, his memories of home seem to him, seem to be to him a kind of stepping stone to that, right? Could he have come to that point of hope, that point of Estelle that he gets to in his song and in Mordor if he didn't have the Shire to cling to, right? If he didn't have that as a kind of terrestrial model in his own mind for beauty that was unassailable. Um, and would that step towards Estelle have been undermined had he known that that beauty was already gone, right? That it was already marred, that at the very moment he was sitting there, um, you know, uh, human ruffians with the help of Ted's handyman were felling the chestnuts down under bag, under bagshot row. Right. Um, he he is opening the question, right. You know, he, or he, he says he wouldn't have, I'd not have had a hope if I'd known all this. Right. Uh, and that's certainly how I would, uh, how I would understand that. So that, that Stephen, that's my understanding of how he's using hope here. Um, uh, lacking that sort of ter- terrestrial parallel, lacking that sort of springboard to Estelle, that way of processing that, I'm not sure that he, um, or at least he doesn't seem sure that he would have been able to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Christopher agreed during his time in Mordor, uh, he, you know, both of them, Frodo more extremely, of course, losing even the memory of the bright things of the world. Yes. Um, and um, and again, how much more rapid would that process have been had he known that uh, those bright things of the world were themselves already being dimmed, uh, being marred. Um, not bringing up the box here. Of course, I mean, that, I, I absolutely agree. A couple of people were saying um, really good to uh, uh, that, you know, really glad that Tolkien in the revisions made Sam the one think of the box. Right. Um, but again, notice another one of those things, which again, I think is implicit still in the published text, but which is not made explicit anymore. Sam's conviction that Galadriel had, you know, gave that to him knowing this, right? She, he doesn't say it, right? But um, his um, uh, his delight in Galadriel's gift and his delight in the moment of recognition that she gave him this gift for this purpose, right? Um, uh, it's one of those things which is, I think that the story is better for that not being stated explicitly. Again, I think the published text is better than this, Um, but it's kind of nice seeing it, right? Uh, Having it kind of underlined uh, by this early draft. Um, Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, now we go to the boss, and of course the boss is Sharky. And Sharky is still a ruffian. So remember, this is the second Sharky. Originally, the leader of the gang in Hobbiton was named Sharky, right? But now it's shifted. Now the boss here is the real Sharky. Um, The man looked puzzled. Then he laughed. You're looking at him, he said. I'm the boss. I'm Sharky, all right. Then where is Mr. Cosimo of Bag End? Don't ask me, said the man. He saw what was coming, and he legged it one night. Poor booby. 
It saved us the trouble of wringing his neck. We've had enough of him. And we've got on better without him. He hasn't—he hadn't the guts of his ma. I see, said Frodo. So you ruffians from Isengard have been bullying this country for a year and pretending to be mayor and sheriff and whatnot and eating most of the food and somethinging folk and setting up your filthy hutches? What for? Who are you, said the Mando? What for me? I'm the boss, and I do what I like. These little swine have got to learn how to work, and I'm here to learn them. Saruman wants goods, and he wants provisions, and he wants a lot of things lying idle here, and he'll get them, or we'll screw the necks off all you little rats and take the land for ourselves. Okay. Um, the surprise to find... So, we get the innovation here, right? Which seems not to have been there at the beginning. I mean, I, I'm suspecting, because, the, because of the shift in the name, Right? That is who Sharky is. Um, we had the mayor and the chief, right? And the boss and Sharky, right? These are all terms that have been kind of floating around ever since they crossed the Brandywine Bridge, right? Um, and it was suggested by, you know, the hobbits in, you know, by the Brandywine Bridge uh, that Cosimo was all of these things, except he was never Sharky, right? But he was probably all the other things. So the fact that Tolkien made that head ruffian of that first group that they meet there in in uh, in, in Hobbiton, uh, that he made him named Sharky the first time, suggests to me that it's at least possible that Cosimo was still going to be the boss at Bag End, so that they would actually come up to Bag End and find Cosimo there. We know it's not Saruman yet anyway, right? Um, so this shift, um, you know, the surprise, then where is Mr. Cosimo of Bag End, um, is, uh, uh, and the fact that this guy is Sharky, where the other guy was Sharky before, and explicitly the boss, right, suggests to me perhaps uh, a change, a change in Tolkien's plan, a, ch a change in Tolkien's mind, um, and that this perhaps is sort of the beginning of the of the evolution, right? Um, that perhaps the original concept was that what we were going to come back and find ultimately was a you know a corrupted Cosmo running the show, um, and instead now we get him we get him displaced and and certainly killed uh, by the ruffians, right? And then, of course, soon we will have him displaced and killed by Saruman and Wormtongue. Um, yeah, yeah. Christopher, you're absolutely right. Poor, boob poor booby should remind you of the troll's way of speaking. Uh, they use that word, um, booby yourself, right? Um, I have to think those are the only two places in the Middle-earth corpus where the word booby is used, right? Uh, so it is interesting that he is resorting back to that. And the thing that's, to me, most interesting about that is the trolls are funny, right? The trolls are comical. Um, poor booby. I mean, that's not as funny as how the trolls talk, but it's um, similar, right? Um, uh, it's 
Yeah. Um, how funny is this guy supposed to be? I, I, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yana is saying this, this villain seems so petty and, and such an anticlimax. Um, yes. Yes. The pettiness, Yana, is the thing that I'm most interested in here, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, and in my mind, it's... Yeah, I think, Christopher, I'm coming back to the same thing. It's that register, right? Uh, Christopher is right to say that the register here isn't quite the same as the troll's register, right? So some of his words like booby, right, feel a little bit out of joint, uh, as Christopher says, totally agree. But again, that whole thing, like, is this guy, you know, comical like the trolls? Weird if he were, right? Why? I mean, the trolls are a, a semi-comical side adventure, right? It's not... Um, it's not the same. This is the literally the boss fight, right? You know, this is the head of the troubles in the Shire. Um, uh, to, we're conf we come to confront him, and then we're supposed to laugh at him like we laugh at the trolls. You know, so I'm sorry, troll. You know, uh, I'm you know trolls do really behave like that. Like I, 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 I yeah, it doesn't work for me at all. It's 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 very odd, um, but. Um, the anticlimax. See, Yana, I, I think the pettiness to me adds to the anticlimax. I don't think that conceptually this dude is necessarily anticlimactic. Again, it's hard because, you know, when we have the published text in mind and we're sort of expecting Saruman, this guy's, you know, this guy's no Saruman. Um, but it's not like it's a terrible idea, right? I mean, I can see the significance. I can see how it works um, to have to be expecting Cosimo, right? Um, a Cosimo who can be taken to task, right? Cosimo the pimple, um, and I am totally going to call call Lotho the pimple from now on, right? I'm not going to call him just Lotho pimple anymore. He's totally Lotho the pimple in my book from now on. Uh, but anyway, um, to come to expect to find Cosimo the pimple uh, and be able to take him down a peg, right? To deal with him and put him in his place. Uh, uh, you know, maybe he can still be reasoned with. Maybe he can't, like Ted Sandyman, but in any case, he can be displaced in the damage that he's done, you know. And then instead find, it's almost like he has morphed into, right? In the place where Cosimo was is now a half-orc thug, right? Um, the way in which that can sort of work as a, I mean, it's sort of like an, in, uh, this guy, he works symbolically for me, right? Um, Cosimo had become half an orc already, right? His outlook had become not fully orcish, but half orcish already. Um, and so there is a sense in which, kind of like, you know, when you sleep on a dragon's horde, you might turn into a dragon, right? If you're thinking very dragonish thoughts, your outer form might come to match your inner form, Right, that's been known to happen on more than one occasion. Um, it's almost like 
that's what happened to Kazuma. It's not. I, I'm not. He's not saying that he transformed into this guy. But again, symbolically, it's almost like that, right? Um, like he, uh, like th- this guy, sort of. He he is uh, what Kazuma really. You know, he is the the expose of Kazuma's like real self there. Um, so again, like symbolically, to me, it works, right? Um, uh, yeah, Kimber says it's almost worse having the villain be just some guy. Um, you know, he's not even really a character. It's showing the kind of banality of evil, right? We don't need like a, uh, a sinister mastermind behind the whole thing. You just find like, yeah, this was just done by a, 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 a thug, right? He's just a thug. Um, there is something I, I agree, Kimber, that works, uh, that way for that very reason, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And I agree, Stephen, uh, Saruman is also rather petty, right? But that works because, as you say, he was greater at one point, and it, you know, the very pettiness, uh, of Saruman in his final appearance emphasizes the tragedy of his fall. Totally agree. Um, I think, Tony, that Sharky isn't delusional about Saruman, here, I think he's just behind the times, right? They haven't heard. They have no idea that Isengard has fallen. And actually, that's something which is, to me, kind of fun, actually. Um, that's one of my favorite elements of the whole pre-Saruman scouring of the Shire, right? Um, that they're behind the times. That line survives into the published text, but the full weight of it uh, is no longer uh, brought to bear, Right? Uh, in the text, um, they're building up a little, a new Isengard, not even knowing that the old Isengard has already been destroyed. Um, they are behind the times. Their master is a beggar in the wilderness, right? They, um, uh, but it has a kind of dual force. Right on the one hand, it shows that Isengard can be destroyed, but um, its works will still persist, uh, and the infection that it was spreading will not necessarily be purged by the destruction of Isengard itself. Right, but at the same time, it also undermines the bad guys in the scouring of the Shire in, I think, a really important way. Right, they believe that they are part of something big. Think back to Ted Sandiman's words, right, about the inevitability of progress, right? Great things are coming up from the South. Well, no, they're not. We know they're not, right? We, we know, without needing to be told, we can hear the full emptiness of Ted Sandiman's words, right? Nobody's coming up from the South. There's going to be no great advances, right? There's going to be no, there aren't going to be a hundred new houses. There aren't going to be a people to put in a hundred new houses. Um, Hobbiton is not going to become a great metropolis, throbbing hub of this new progressive society. It's not going to happen. Uh, Isengard is destroyed, and Saruman's entire empire has been wiped out. But Ted Sandiman doesn't know it yet, right? Um, and I like that element of it. I like that quite a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, James Oakley says it's like Morgoth's lies, which are a seed that does not die. Yeah, yeah, no, we can see that here, I think. Um, uh, 
Oh, and I agree with you, Yana. Uh, it is not necessarily clear that the ruffians in the Shire are aware that Isengard is gone. I, I bet Saruman has kept that fact to himself. Absolutely. Remember, you know, when uh, they tell the Hobbiton gang, right, that Isengard is fallen and that their master's a beggar in the wilderness, they scoff at him, right? Of course, because he's not a beggar in the wilderness, he's right up the hill. Um, but that fact can, I think, cloud, uh, you know... When in retrospect we remember what the Hobbiton gang says, uh, you know, when they, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, oh, bigger in the wilderness is he swagger it, swagger it, my little cock a hoop, right? Um, when they say that to Frodo, we might, in retrospect, focus only on the fact that they said he was a beggar in the wilderness and he's not, right? Um, that they know they, the ruffians, know something that they don't, um, but they think also. Um, Again, uh, Yana, I am 100% convinced that Saruman has lied to them, right? That he has told them that this is like a state visit from Isengard, right? When he comes to them. Um, because the their whole attitude towards Frodo and the others, right? On the road there in Hobbit, in the published text I'm talking about now, um, seems to be like they don't believe anything they say because they can disprove it, right? They can disprove it because Saruman, they said Saruman was a beggar in the wilderness and he's not, obviously he's not, right? Uh, so, uh, so that means therefore there's no reason to take seriously anything else that they say, including the fact that Isengard has fallen. So absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um, so anyway, like I said, I don't dislike Sharky number two. Um, I, 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 I think there are lots of ways in which it works. I, obviously, I still think that Saruman is better, right? And showing the final fall uh, of Saruman is, I think, a really, really fitting way. Um, but especially since the reason that Tolkien wasn't doing that at first seems to be that he wanted to redeem Saruman, I can get behind that program as well. Uh, so, um, uh, but anyway, I, I, don't, I don't dislike uh, Sharky number two. No, this is Sharky number two, Yana, because Sharky number one was the ruffian down in the valley, and he was different, right? Um, he was the head thug, right? So he's similar, but this guy is different. Uh, he is this, he's bigger, he's this half-orc guy, you know, he's the physical description of him, which is very orc-like, um, puts him in, a, this, is, this, is, this is a differently conceived person, I, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. Then Frodo challenges him to single combat. This is where it gets weird to me, right? Uh, so, oh, wait, hang on a second. Before we before we talk about Frodo's single combat, uh, uh, one um, uh, one thing that just occurred to me that I wanted to I I I thought of the, I've thought of this twice in the middle of talking about other things tonight so far, and I didn't want to leave it behind before I forget about it again. Um, I don't think... For a long time, when I was a kid, I didn't even really know what the word scour meant. Um, it wasn't part of my vocabulary wasn't part of my family vocabulary. We never talked about scour. I'm not saying nothing was ever scoured in my house, but we didn't use that word. Um, so for a long time, 
this was one of those, I mean, I'm sure many of you can think of words like this in your own experience, right? Where you come across a word in a book, in a favorite book, which you therefore read many times, but you have no other context for it. So the book itself comes to form uh, through context, right? A like definition in your head, which takes years to work out. So that was true of scouring for me. Um, so scouring of this was this chapter was called the scouring of the Shire. Um, so for many many years, I had the vague idea that the word scouring, um, uh, the word scouring uh, meant, um, you know, like what happens to the Shire, right? Like going around and rounding up and and kicking out the ruffians, right? Like the, you know, this kind of. Um, you know, the expulsion of, uh, of bullies and things like that. You know, I, 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 I didn't know the metaphor. Like I just, I, you know, that it has to do with like, you know, cleaning things and cleaning pots. Um, I had no idea. Um, so, uh, um, anyway, therefore, for that reason, um, uh, and hang on a second, Tim, Website. Go to the, the the link is on the Mythgard.org website if you want to join the GoTo webinar. Um, anyway, um, and yes, it's a harsh cleaning, Stephen. Exactly. This is something you do with a with a harsh scrub, right? But anyway, that um, the the point is because I never knew the word, and only very indirectly later on came around to it. Um, the force of the metaphor was kind of um, lost on me, right? Almost completely. Um, and so I think it's something that I have not thought about enough, like, to this day, basically, because, um, um, uh, uh, because again, like, it just, you know, this is like scour the scouring of the Shire is what the word scouring meant. Uh, it was the primary definition. Um, so anyway, the point that I'm getting back around to, this occurred to me while we were talking about Ted Sandyman, but I forgot to talk about it then. The dirtiness of Ted Sandyman, right? I, I, it never struck me before, um, tonight, that is, how the dirtiness of Ted Sandyman is, serves as a kind of metaphor, right, for, you know, is, is kind of tied into the fundamental metaphor that the chapter title is using for what's happening to the Shire, right? The Shire doesn't just need to be freed from its oppressors. It, it does, but it doesn't just need to be freed. It needs to be, and it doesn't just need to be restored or rebuilt. It needs to be cleansed. It has been sullied. It has been dirtied. It is like Ted Sandyman covered in filth, and it needs to get chucked in the river and given a bath. Now, I'm not saying that the whole shower, the whole Shire necessarily is Ted Sandyman, right? Um, because again, that would suggest that the whole Shire was unredeemable. Uh, I'm not saying Ted Sandyman is necessarily unredeemable, but so far gone that he, you know, there's no point even talking to him, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to extend that parallel really far, but I'm just thinking of the physical dirtiness of Ted Sandyman, and I never really made that connection uh, between. Um, Ted Sandyman's filth, right? Um, which always struck me while I was not noticing this. At the same time, I did always used to think that the dirtiness of Ted Sandyman was a little strange, right? Like, why does Sam comment on how dirty he looks, right? Um, um, 
you know, no time for washing. That always kind of struck me as a slightly feeble jab on Sam's part. Like, okay, he's dirty. Uh, all right. Um, but of course, within the kind of metaphorical economy or sort of symbolic economy of this chapter, it makes a, a great deal of sense. Um, and Brian, you're right. It is a metaphor that works both ways. Um, the ruffians think that they're cleaning up the Shire and making it productive and useful. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. There's the, the sort of the irony there, right, is, um, um, is important, I think. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. So I just wanted to talk about scouring and, uh, and, and cleaning and how, uh, again, especially this version, this fuller first version of Ted Sandyman, uh, the dirty Ted Sandyman in need of a good scouring, um, is, uh, has kind of helped clarify for me, actually, the whole metaphorical structure of this chapter and its title. Anyway, okay, back to Frodo and his boss fight, literally boss fight, right? So Frodo draws Sting, which he has, and we've seen that before, um, and challenges Sharky the boss to single combat and slays him there in Bilbo's garden. So died Sharky the boss on the something or other where Bilbo's garden had been. Frodo, crawling maybe from under him, looked at him as he wiped Sting on the grass. Well, he said, if Bilbo, if ever Bilbo hears of this, he'll believe the world has really changed. Boy, and how! Anyway, sorry. When Gandalf and I sat here long ago, I think that the la- that at least one thing I could never have guessed would be that the last stroke of the battle would be at this door. Why not? said Sam. Very right and proper, and I'm glad that it was yours, Mr. Frodo. But if I may say so, though it was a grand day at Cormallon, and the happiest I've known, I never have felt that you got as much praise as you deserve. Of course not, Sam, said Frodo. I'm a hobbit. But why grumble? You've been far more neglected yourself. There's never only one hero in any true tale, Sam, and all the good folk are in others' debt. But if one had to choose one and one only, I'd choose Samwise. If one had to choose one and one only, I'd choose Samwise. Uh, I think that I need that on a placard, uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Tara says, me too. I know, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I, I should, like, integrate that into my email signature or something like that, right? Um, uh, anyway, okay. So, uh, so yeah, once again, we see Tolkien writing out uh, in prose, right? Including in dialogue all of these things that were only implicit, that are, that are left implicit in the published text. Standard practice, of course, as he gets these things out and then cuts them back. Um, but here, the really interesting part is not just the fact that he has them say these things aloud. Um, and yes, Carita, it is the cutest darn thing, isn't it? Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, the fact that Sam puts, you know, this, his stamp of approval here on, you know, Frodo's striking the last blow, um, uh, you know, the, the, in this final single combat in the Garden of Bag End, um, really emphasizes this initiative that Tolkien had 
for Frodo, right? Um, Tolkien seems absolutely to have shared Sam's... uh, I mean, what Sam articulates seems to fit with exactly the shape that we see in this narrative, right? As if Tolkien himself had been thinking, though it was a grand day at Cormelon and the happiest I've ever known, I never have felt that you got as much praise as you deserve. Like, Tolkien has been putting this pressure on himself to, like, make sure that Frodo gets his due, right? Um, and I, I, th- that's what... That's what it's felt like. That's what it smelled like all the way through the scouring of the Shire so far. Um, and that it should end, that Frodo should come back, you know, not just return viewed as a war hero, but become a war hero, become a warrior, right? Um, to do an act of heroism so that people are now going to talk about Frodo Baggins, um, Frodo of the Nine Fingers, just like they talk about Bullroar Took. Um, at least as much as they talk about it. He may, you know, if this, if, if this is how it had really gone, you know, if that's, if this is how it continued to go down, right? Um, one can easily imagine that Frodo would become an even more impressive warrior figure in Hobbit legend, even than Bullroar. Um, and it's just very interesting to me, uh, that, Tolkien had made that initial move. Um, Here's my primary reflection on this. I called, I titled, my title for the class tonight was Keeping It Real, right? And I think in the end that that's what Tolkien does here, is he keeps things real. This this isn't real, right? Um, I'm not saying Sam's wrong, of course. Yes, Frodo does deserve more praise. Frodo deserves lots and lots of glory, right? Frodo's also right. Sam deserves more glory than he gets, too. But um, but Frodo does des- deserve more glory, right? And that impulse... Sam's impulse in the book, what seems to be Tolkien's impulse in this first draft, um, to give Frodo more glory, totally natural, totally understandable. Um, But it doesn't feel real. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here's the bigger pattern that I see in the original story. And I was thinking about this more after reading the um, Grey Havens chapter, concerning which I have way fewer passages, uh, uh, a couple I wanted to look at. But um, a lot of the elements, of course, of the the Grey Havens chapter were there in the first draft. Um, I've said this before. Remember that so the Shire has been wrecked, or it looks like it's been wrecked, um, but it gets cleaned again, right? Not only is the damage that's been done to the Shire not permanent, but 
the new Shire, right? The restored Shire after the efforts of, of, of the returning hobbits, especially Sam, um, uh, with his forestry work and whatnot. You know, the Shire down the is more glorious, right? Um, it's not worse off for what happened in the end. It's better off, right? Um, that's there. That's there in the original text. In the original draft, I mean. And of course, a lot of that remains in the published text, including the sentence that I really love, but which I have often said before feels like a real self-indulgence on Tolkien's part. Um, uh, and no one was ill and everyone was pleased except for those who had to mow the grass, right? Um, and no one was ill and everyone was pleased, right? Um, that sentence uh, takes the happily ever after thing that we get at the end of The Lord of the Rings to a very high level, right? Now, in the published text, we get that note, but it's not the whole story, right? But if you think about it, if you think about this first version of the Scouring of the Shire, and in particular, Frodo's glory here, right? Um, it seems to me like a logical extension of that same thing. Remember again, Sam waking up at the field of Cormallon and finds that they're all alive and... Uh, sees that Gandalf is alive again for some reason, right? Um, and you'll remember Sam's very memorable comment. Um, are all the, are, you know, is everything sad going to come untrue, right? In the first, in the A text, this one single continuous draft that goes from many through many from many partings right from that takes them uh, takes the story from Minas Tirith through Rivendell uh, through Bree and the scouring of the Shire to the Grey Havens and the epilogue right all in one continuous continuously paginated swoop at very high speed uh, and in very sloppy writing that text right in that text, it's kind of close, isn't it? It's kind of close to all everything sad coming untrue, right? Um, had Tolkien stuck with that, had Tolkien stuck with Frodo comes back and instead of being changed the way that he is, instead of being underappreciated, he, you know, comes back and then, like, on top of what he achieved in Mordor uh, and the recognition he received in, Mor in you know, in, 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 in Gondor. And remember the extra passage in, in Rohan as well, right? Gandalf's extra speech about how everyone in the Mark shall always remember Frodo and Samwise. Remember that? Um, you know, and then he comes back to the Shire and performs a new deed of stunning courage and daring do, right, to establish him as a you know the greatest legendary hero in the history of Hobbit Hobbitdom as well, right? And then now add all those Grey Havens passages, right? All the stuff about the blessings of the year fourteen twenty and uh, all the trees growing back super fast and uh, the beautiful children and the bounteous crops and. 
you know, one year serving for 20 and everybody's pleased and nobody's ill, right? Um, you know, that's it. The whole thing starts to sound, and I agree, Christopher, it is a, a classic fairy tale impulse, no question. Um, but, um, uh, but the whole picture, right? Almost the whole story, end of the story, ends up being this one long, um, I'm almost tempted to use the word smarmy, right? It's, it's sweet, honey sweet, right? But too sweet, almost. Um, the thing that makes the sadness at the end of The Lord of the Rings, right? Frodo's wounding. Frodo's not only failing to receive recognition or acknowledgement for what he did, but unable to be happy with it, right? Unable to, um, to rest back at home, um, you know, until he, uh, uh, you know, takes ship. Um, the sadness at the end of The Lord of the Rings is what makes it feel so powerful, right? I mean, it is a profound insight, I think. Um, and the fact that this loss and sacrifice that we get from, that we see in Frodo, you know, that we get from Frodo, uh, at the end of the story is such a powerfully important part of the ending. Um, I am super glad that Tolkien second-guessed uh, this impulse. So, I, you know, seeing this impulse to add glory to Frodo, right, seems to be in part, I agree, who was saying uh, about... Um, uh, I missed it. Um, yeah, Kate. It was Kate. Um, I was asking, do I think it's because Tolkien didn't want readers to consider Frodo a failure? Um yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, yes, I think there's that, right? Um, but again, it goes way beyond that, right? If we can see, when we take all of those, like, sweet, happy things that we do get in the last chapter, right? If we combine them with this happy, glorious, Frodo is amazing and everybody sees it uh, and everything works out in this, like, amazingly heroic and stunning way... When you put all of that together, um, we begin to get this much more monochrome, um, uh, yeah, Druid's Fire Saccharin uh, kind of uh, um, picture at the end, right? Um, and and wow, would the end of the Lord of the Rings have really suffered had that been, had he merely continued to follow that uh, impulse. And again, Christopher, I agree again with what you said before. It is a perfectly respectable fairy tale impulse, right? Happily Ever After is indeed a perfectly good ending, but there's a difference between Happily Ever After and this, right? It's one thing to say Happily Ever After. It's another thing to give, you know, a whole chapter in which you describe, two chapters, really, because we'd have to count the, the, the Scouring of the Shire in that, um, two full chapters in which we dwell on how everything sad comes untrue. Almost, right? Um, uh, it would almost be true 
here at the end. Uh, and that's uh, not um, not awesome. Not, not awesome, I think. Um, all right, let's keep going. Um, here was one of the most striking. This was, of all, this was kind of a small point, uh, but I was absolutely fascinated by this one. Um, so, of course, remember that the, the Battle of Bywater happens off screen, right? Uh, meanwhile, while Frodo was having the boss fight, um, uh, Pippin and the others were fighting the Battle of... But meanwhile, there's Pippin fighting the Battle of Bywater, which is a minor skir- skirmish in comparison. Anyway, it was as he said. While they had dealt with the boss, things had flared up in Bywater. The ruffians were no fools. They had sent a man on a horse to, within, horn cry of Mickle Delving, for they had many horn signals. By midnight, they had all assembled at Weymoot, eighteen miles west of the Bywater Road. Crossing, maybe? They had horses of their own on the White Downs, and rode like the fire. They charged the road barrier at ten a.m., but fifty were slain. The others had scattered and escaped. Pippin had killed maybe five, five-ish of them, and was wounded himself. So ended the maybe fierce Battle of Bywater, the only battle ever fought in the Shire, and it has at least a chapter all to itself in all standard histories, but it barely gets a paragraph to itself here. It was some time before the last ruffians were hunted out, and oddly enough, little though the hobbits were inclined to believe it, quite a number turned out to be far from incurable. And then a little later we see, if they gave themselves up, they were kindly treated, and fed, for they were usually half-starved after hiding in the woods, and then shown to the borders. This sort were Dunlenders, not orc men or half-breeds, who had originally come because their own land was wretched, and Saruman had told them that there was a good country with plenty to eat away north. It is said that they found their own country very much better in the days of the king, and were glad to return. But certainly the reports that they spread, enlarged for the covering of their own shame, of the numerous and warlike, not to say ferocious, hobbits of the Shire, did something to preserve the hobbits from further trouble. Okay. Um, One thing at a time here. Uh, Actually, let's focus on the second part first. Um, That Dunlendings, or Dunlanders, uh, as they're called here, um, were some of the ruffians who came up north, um, is really interesting, right? Um, and it really is kind of charming. The, uh, the rumors that they bring back to the south of the numerous, uh, warlike, ferocious hobbits of the Shire, uh, right? So nobody dares go near the Shire again because they believe it's full of, you know, savage warriors. Um, that's, um, uh, delightful and, uh, funny, right? Um, the note that the Dunlendings become happy in Dunland, right? Uh, that their land becomes much uh, better, that's the word, much better in the days of the king, um, and that they become happier in it, right, is a really interesting point. Just simply interesting that Tolkien has the impulse to um, uh, sort of settle the Dunlendings, right? Um because uh, it, they do seem to make out rather well, Stephen. I agree. You know, because they were on they were on the losing side, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, James. I don't know about this being transposed to the Rohirrim, where Saruman told the Dunlendings 
that Rohirrim were cruel and killed their captives. We get a similar kind of thing, but I, I don't know that I could call this a transference exactly. Um, but um, but anyway, uh, we do get... I mean, you're right to recall that passage that after the Battle of Helm's Deep, when many of the Dunlanders, uh, are, you know, when the, they show mercy to them, um, when the Dunlanders have been taught to not expect mercy... We can kind of see a, a foreshadowing uh, here of that same kind of imp- impulse, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Nancy, I agree. This is a nice little glimpse into the comparative political stability of like Greater Eriador uh, in the Fourth Age. Absolutely. Um, but the um, the part that I was most interested in here, right, um, is the ruffians, the redeemed ruffians, right? Um, some of the ruffians stay and settle down in the Shire. Quite a number turned out to be far from incurable. Little though the hobbits were inclined to believe it, quite a number turned out to be far from incurable. Um, so they hunt them out, right? But they don't kill them, Um they show them to the borders, but some stay or stay nearby. The idea of curing the ruffians um, uh, is, uh, you know, I can kind of understand why, you know, Tolkien cut out the bit about Dunland, uh, right? You know, kind of a lot to throw in an aside in one sentence, right, at this random point. Um, but... Uh, but interesting, you know, the, the, in the published text, they're shown firmly to the border, and we never know what happens to them, right? Um, I've always felt that we're left to believe that they carry on. What's the what's the verb form of ruffian? What does a ruffian do? Does he does he rough? Is he roughing? Uh, anyway. Whatever they do, they would carry on doing it right outside the borders of the Shire. Um, Ruffiate. Ooh, I like that. Ruffinate. That's even better, Kate. Yeah, excellent. Ruffinate. It's official. That's official. I'm adopting. I'm I'm adopting that. They ruffinate. So they would carry on ruffinating, uh, which is kind of like pollinating, but not exactly the same. They would carry on ruffinating outside the borders of the Shire. Um... But uh, anyway, the idea that some are far from incurable uh, is really cool. And the ver- I mean, that one sentence, though the hobbits, uh, little though the hobbits were inclined to believe it, quite a number turned out to be far from incurable. The concepts both of the not incurability of the ruffians and of the uh, incredulity of the hobbits, I mean, that sentence contains seeds of a whole big story, right? Imagining communities of ex-ruffians uh, and hobbits growing up near each other, in contact with each other, um, uh, learning to respect and get along with each other. I mean, it's it's a fascinating kind of glimpse. Um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like Brie. Like a new Brie, James. Exactly. Um, a fascinating prospect. Um but uh, anyway, kind of sorry we lost the glimpse of redeemed ruffians uh, in the in the published text. But 
Okay. Um, so, all right. So this is now going through the second draft, and I'll go through these a little bit more quickly. Um, this is at the Cotton's farm the second time. Keep still and quiet, said Sam. Cotton, called Mary. Rope, we've got one. Tie him up. But the ruffians outside began attacking the door again, while some were smashing the windows with stones. Prisoner, said Frodo. You seem a leader. Stop your men or you will pay for the damage. They dragged him close to the door. Go home, you fools, he shouted. They've got me, and they'll do for me if you go on. Clear out. Tell Sharky. What for? a voice answered from outside. We know what Sharky wants. Come on, lads, burn the whole lot inside. Sharky won't miss that boob. Oh, he's, he's a boob, too. He's no use for them as makes mistakes. Burn the lot. Look alive and get the fuel. Try again, said Sam grimly. The prisoner, now desperately frightened, screamed out, Hi, lads! No burnings! No more burnings, Sharky said. Send a messenger. You might find it was you had made a mistake. Hi, do you hear? All right, lads, said the other voice. Two of you ride back quick. Two go for fuel. The rest make a ring round the place. And it's not super clear um, where this is exactly headed, right? But this is what is replacing in the second draft the bloody battle <laughs> at Farmer Cotton's place um, that we got in the first draft. So we can see he's pulling back. Um, he's still making the hobbits very ferocious, much more... Um, I was about to say martial. That's not right. They're martial in the published text. Uh, they're just less warrior-like. Um, uh, anyway, so we can see his... Uh, this is a kind of an interesting intermediary stage, right? Uh, between the comparative lack of open-armed conflict that we get in the published text uh, to the, uh, you know, the uh, big brawls that we got in the first uh, uh, in the first version. Um and there's a, doesn't this feel a little bit, doesn't this sort of remind you a little bit of uh, the old version of Minas Morgul, right? Remember when that was originally the tower that Sam and Frodo got taken to when they were betrayed by Gollum and Tolkien was trying to help them escape and got totally stuck, right? Couldn't figure out how to get them out because the Nazgul was showing up and like, now what? How can they escape? Frodo can't wear the ring. What's going on? And he ended up pitching it, right? And going back and rewriting that whole thing. Um, this begins to feel almost like that same kind of standoff where uh, we can see Tolkien actively pulling back from the from the battle, right? Uh, wanting to make this less of a, uh, uh, you know, to have there be less bloodshed. And, you know, we don't want blood splattered on the walls of, uh, of Farmer Cotton's house anymore. Um, but now what? You know, we almost had the Norse saga uh, burning down to the house. Um, and now, but now we're not doing that. But what are we doing? Right. They're making a ring around the place. And now what's going to come next? We don't know. And he's just going to end up pitching this entirely. Right. Like he did with Minas Morgul. Um, uh, but uh, interesting that he's kind of painted himself into this particular kind of corner. And now Saruman, finally. Uh, this time, of course, we're surprised not by the second Sharky, but by the third Sharky, right? The, the final Sharky. No doubt, no doubt, but you did not, and so I am able to welcome you home. There, standing at the door, was Saruman, looking well-fed and a great deal less wretched than before. His eyes gleamed with malice and amusement. A sudden light broke on Frodo. Sharky, he said. Saruman laughed. So you've heard that, have you? 
I believe all my men used to call me that in the better times. They were so devoted. And so it has followed me up here, has it? Really, I find that quite cheering. I cannot imagine why, said Frodo. And what are you doing here, anyway? Just a little shabby mischief? Gandalf said he thought you were still capable of that. Struck out, need you ask, said Saruman. You made me laugh, you hobbit lordling, said Saruman, riding along with all these great people, so secure and so pleased with yourselves, thinking you have done great things and can now just come back and laze in the country. Saruman's home can be ruined and he can be turned out, but not Mr. Baggins. Oh, no, he's really important. Okay, and this is, of course, very close uh, to... um, uh, to the final published text, very striking in the context of what we've seen, however, right? Um, uh, the final evolution of Sharky, the replacement of Cosimo, uh, of course, made much more direct instead of the half-orc thug, who is kind of that, you know, as I say, that kind of dragonish inner side of Cosimo, right? The sort of the, the reveal of what Cosimo has become. Instead, we get the reveal of, like, uh, you know, what he was the direction he was moving all along, right? Him moving down the path uh, that Saruman uh, was on, him being drawn down the same Saruman's own path, right? Um, So, um, uh, but, um, notice also the, with the addition of Saruman uh, and the choice to have, to show Saruman be so diminished, his eyes gleaming with malice and amusement, right? Um, The reduction of Saruman has a kind of intriguingly perverse effect on Frodo and the other hobbits, right? We saw Frodo, especially Frodo, but even the other hobbits being elevated, right? Made more heroic, um, emphasizing so that everyone will appreciate how great they are. We find Saruman taken way down, and he is himself, in his reduction, right, he is poking holes at them. He is deflating them. Little hobbit, you know, you hobbit lordlings, right? Hobbit lordlings, that's exactly what they were when they, in this first version of the Scouring of the Shire, I mean, right? Hobbit lordling is precisely how Frodo was acting, how masterful he was acting, right? How he would come in, and he was, he was ordering everybody, like, you best not you know, cross Frodo, uh, right? Um, that's exactly, he was, a lordling is precisely what he was acting like, right? And now we have Saruman not only diminished himself, but, but poking holes in that, right? Um, uh, riding along with all these great people so secure and so pleased, thinking you have done great things and can just come back and laze in the country, which will all love you and, you know, you you will go on to rescue, right? Um, Saruman here seeking to deflate them, to mock them for their elevation, in fact, of course, results in Frodo, in a very different, and I've always thought, um, uh, much more profound elevation, right? Frodo's wisdom, the mercy that he shows to Saruman, that's like, we see how he has grown. Saruman perceives how he has grown, right? He has grown in ways which are so much more important than 
solo combat, solo boss fight with a half orc in the in the Garden of Bag End, right? He's more than just a warrior. Uh, the kind of heroism, the kind of uh, glory that Frodo earns, right? That he deserves for the mercy that he shows to Saruman for his activity, uh, trying to prevent as many as possible of the other hobbits from killing ruffians, right? From killing prisoners. Um, the way in which he attempts to ensure that as few of the hobbits are morally damaged by the situation as possible, that is a much higher level of heroism than what we see him doing in the first uh, uh, in the first drafts, right? So it's interesting to see that, you know, this, the way that these things kind of come together here at the end. This is the beginning of, uh, um, the beginning of the Grey Havens thing. And so the year drew to its end. Even Sam could find no fault with Frodo's fame and honor in his own country. The Tooks were too obscure in their traditional position, we're sorry, we're too secure in their traditional position, and after all, their folkland was the only one that had never given in to the ruffians, and also too generous to be really jealous. Yet it was plain that the name of Baggins would become the most famous in Hobbit history. This is still in the A-text, mind, right? So when Tolkien wrote this, the, the, this is with the boss fight in the rearview mirror, right? So this is the same text in which uh, Frodo has single-handedly defeated uh, Sharky number two. Um, but again, notice the elevation of the Baggins name, right? Um, there is no question. The Bagginses are going to be the most famous hobbits, the famousest of the hobbits, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Boomful says Frodo the Terrible, Frodo the Red-Handed. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's the kind of rep that he's uh, building here in the Shire. Um, after all, remember, like the Tooks have been ascendant, right? Um, and they're too secure in their tra position to be uh, their traditional position to be jealous. Um, but you know. The tradition of the bull, you know, the figure of Bull Roarer Took lying at the back of that helps that traditional position, right? So, yeah, it does kind of imply that parallel. Um, interesting that Tolkien seems even this impulse to, um, that, that, that Tolkien feels this impulse to fend off the idea of rivalry between the Tooks and the Bagginses. Right, um, which of course is especially interesting from a Hobbit perspective, from the from the point of view of the Hobbit and thinking of the Took and Baggins sides of Bilbo, uh, really interesting. Um, but again, think about how that has transformed. Right, what Baggins will come to mean in future generations? This total transformation. Now we see that transformation already happening in some ways. Right. You know, from the respectable Baggins, whom you will always know what they will do, to Mad Baggins, who shows up with, um, you know, with a bang and a flash and bags of gold. Uh, major transformation. But, um, uh, but yeah, in the final story, yes, it does seem that uh, Baggins, that Mad Baggins, exactly, that will be what is primarily remembered about the Bagginses, right? Um, and so we still see Tolkien resisting that 
Um, but even he seems to see the problem, right? If there are they going to eclipse the Tooks? Is the power going to pass to the Bagginses? Is there going to, you know, down the road, will there be civil wars between the Took and Baggins factions, right? As if, uh, you know, we see sort of the conflicts within Bilbo's character writ large in civil war in the this, you know, horrid future of the Shire. Not saying that we necessarily uh, see that uh, 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 fully, but again, it's it's all kinds of uncomfortable, right? Uh, to, to actually go down this road that he goes down, uh, in the first draft. Um, here's a curious moment. Gandalf's final interactions with the hobbits at midsummer, Gandalf appeared suddenly and his visit was long remembered for the astonishing things that happened to all the bonfires, which hobbit children light on midsummer's Eve. The whole shire was lit with lights of many colors until the dawn came, and it seemed that the fire ran wild for him, maybe, over all the land, so that the grass was kindled with glittering jewels, and the trees were hung with red and gold blossom all through the night, and the shire was full of light and song until the dawn came. Whew. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, George R. R. Martin would approve. Uh, Christopher, you think of what of, of the future civil wars between the Tooks and the Bagginses? Yeah, probably so. Um, so the idea that Gandalf would say goodbye to the hobbits, right, with a um, fireworks display of special magnificence is kind of fun and kind of interesting, right? Um, but yikes, this is a lot. Uh, okay. So Hobbit children light bonfires on Midsummer's Eve. All right. I'll buy that for a dollar. And then Gandalf comes through and makes all the bonfires all across the Shire, uh, light up with many colors and remain lit until the dawn comes. Okay. That's kind of awesome. Right. Um, and I agree, Yana. I, I I love the idea, really, of Gandalf sort of saying goodbye to uh, the hobbits of the Shire, right? Um, of him giving them this sort of last thing to remember him by, as it were. But it's not just the bonfires, right? The fire runs over all the land, you know, ran wild for him. Christopher Tolkien is very unsure about uh, that that's what it says. It might or it might not. But over all the land so that the grass was kindled with glittering jewels, it is clear, nevertheless, that um, whatever that phrase may be, this night the whole shire catches fire in, you know, brilliant glittering jewels and brightly colored flames. So, like, the whole shire is on fire. I presume that they don't wake up on Midsummer's Day uh, and find the Shire a burned-out husk, right? <laughs> Stephen says it's like Gandalf is making a scorched earth retreat <laughs> from the Shire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I really... Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Christopher says the subsequent famine killed off half the population. Yeah, so I'm, I'm assuming... Right, I'm assuming that when they wake up on Midsummer's Day, the whole land isn't devastated by the glittering, beautiful, but a horrible wildfire that has swept across and uh, burned out the Shire. Probably just 
some kind of a display, something more like perhaps Timothy, more like the St. Elmo's fire described in Moby Dick, something like that. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, so I, again, I'm going to assume that he's not right. Exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. James Levac. It's almost like he's trying to one up Saruman, right? Well, Saruman still left some stuff standing. I'm going to take it all down. Um, but anyway, yeah, no. So, um, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, and I don't think that that's the implication here. Um, Almost strange, though. No, it is not almost strange. It is strange. It's absolutely strange that Gandalf's farewell. To the, I mean, like the bonfires would be one thing that he. Um, uh, I mean, in my subtitle, I you know I called this slide fireworks swollen to cover a realm, um, reminding me, of course, of Sam's temptation to have a garden swollen to a realm. Um, that Gandalf ends with this fireworks display, which like completely not consumes, but transforms the entire Shire. There's a kind of symbolic force that kind of works there, right? As if what is being made visible here is like, this is a, a making visible of Gandalf's blessing of the Shire in some way. But, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's just really weird. Um, uh, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Brian Dimmick says this kind of feels like the Hobbit Gandalf in an odd way. Um, maybe, maybe, um, <laughs> Tim says in my version of the return of the King movie, I'm putting this in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Peter Jackson missed an amazing opportunity here. I think of your special effects budget for this, Tim, it's going to be incredible. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't love this. I don't even know what to do with this. It's just strange. Um, that, that Gandalf would say goodbye to all the hobbits makes sense. That he would make, that he would say goodbye to all the hobbits with the firework display to end all firework displays, kind of fits. That's what he was most well known for and best loved for in the Shire, after all. But it seems a little gaudy, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to transform the entire landscape of the Shire into a fireworks display. Um, a little much, maybe, um, uh, but I mean, what are the implications of this? Like, what are the long-term effects of this? And I don't mean the the smoking devastation of the Shire, because again, probably didn't didn't happen. But I mean, like, what? How is this going to go down in Hobbit lore? Right? Um, how are they even going to process this? Uh, how could anyone process this exactly? Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, it's, um, uh, yeah, Timothy, it is like a transfiguration of the Shire, but I'm, but I think, I think Tim, that that's what I don't like about it actually it feels like gilding the lily. I mean, it's almost literally gilding the, litter, the, the lily here. I mean, it's... The Shire is already glorious, right? And has been shown to be glorious. It's already blessed. Why add glittering jewels? I assume the glittering jewels 
refer to colored flames, not literal jewels. That like it's not like, strewn with jewels like the shores of Alqualonde. Um but um uh but anyway, I, you know, it uh it seems like um uh yeah. Rather than so th- the transfiguration Tim, I assume you're thinking of the transfiguration of Jesus in the gospel accounts, right? Where he has suddenly revealed the glowing, you know, the, the white light and everything where he's transfigured before the apostles. That's a revelation of like his real being, right? That like, that's, you know, Jesus of Nazareth uncloaked there, right on the hilltop. Um, but that's what I don't like about this. Is this the Shire uncloaked? Is that what we're supposed to be seeing here? Right. Is Gandalf like revealing the true beauty of the Shire? Cause this doesn't, that's not what this, it doesn't feel like the effect that's actually being established here, right? Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> really weird and cut pretty quickly, but kind of strange. Um, no, not kind of strange. Very strange. All right. Uh, a few comments on the titles. Um, Memoirs of an Amateur Burglar. By the way, that is like my official subtitle of The Hobbit now. I will always think of The Hobbit as mem- The Memoirs of an Amateur Burglar. I love that title. Memoirs of an Amateur Burglar. My Unexpected Journey. There and Back Again and What Happened After. Adventures of Five Hobbits. The Case of the Great Ring. Compiled from the records and notes of B. Baggins and others. What the Bagginses did in the War of the Ring. Here Bilbo's hand ended and Frodo had written The Downfall of the Lord of the Rings and The Return of the King as seen by B. and F. Baggins, S. Gamgee, M. Brandybuck, P. Took, supplemented by information provided by the wise. Um, Nancy, I was thinking exactly the same thing. The Case of the Great Ring makes it sound like a Sherlock Holmes story, Right. Uh, and Kate is pointing out that Memoirs of an Amateur Burglar makes it sound like a P.G. Wodehouse story, right? I, I wonder if, like, Tolkien was actually doing send-ups. The Case of the Great Ring, that sounds way too Holmes, right, to be a coincidence, right? Um, you know, was Tolkien actually attempting a kind of a joke there? Right. Yeah, exactly. Christopher says Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called and he wants his title back. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, um, it um, uh, it's a fascinating kind of line of jokes there uh, that, uh, you know, I think get uh, certainly get done away with in the final version. Um, but uh, but I it. But, like, talk about things I don't usually juxtapose in my brain, right? It would be The Lord of the Rings and Sherlock Holmes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, really fascinating there. One of the other small touches that I found interesting... Oh, and uh, what the Bagginses did in The War of the Ring. Is it just me, or can you only hear that in Gollum's voice, right? Bagginses? Uh you know, that's, um, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> As yeah, Christopher, I think it's a good way of saying it, that the, the, the titles here do seem to kind of fall out of the frame, right? Yeah. They, you know, they really do. Um, but, um, 
anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, Tarloniel says, what did the Bagginses do in the War of the Ring? They stole our precious, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that. That's probably the Gollum expose version uh, of the story. Um, but the other thing that, so in the published text, the final title, right, um, of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king as seen by the little people being the memoirs of Frodo, Bilbo and Frodo of the Shire. Uh, Gamgee, Brandy Buck, and Took aren't mentioned, right? That they get co-authorship here, right? Or at least, uh, you know, their contributions are mentioned by name is, um, is interesting here, right? Um, uh, that his first impulse was to list them all by name, uh, instead of just saying as supplemented by the accounts of their friends and the learning of the wise, as we get in the published text, um, uh, the naming of them all. And yes, uh, Tim, exactly as Tom Shippey was saying at Mythmoot, you know, this is the British naming convention, right? First initial uh, and last name. Um, so they are being listed almost like authors here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I find it interesting, the, the listing of the names um, and the choice to move away from that, that he looks at this and he's like, oh, what is he just like, it's too long? Um, you know, again, we don't know why Tolkien made the change exactly, but the effect of the change is to de-emphasize the rest of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah. Anyway, one more, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, Christopher says, just a final note, in B, the B text, appeared the three rings of the elves on the fingers of their bearers, but they were not yet named. That is, the rings, not the bearers, presumably. It was not until the book was in galley proof that Vilia, mightiest of the three, was added to the description of Elrond's ring, Gandalf's ring was named Narya the Great, and that of Go Narya the Great, but not quite so great as Vilya, apparently, and that of Goadriel became Nenya, the ring wrought of Mithril. Um, uh, anyway, um, what an interesting little reminder of how we've seen the elven rings changing and growing, right? How he, you know, the whole, like the, how the hand of Sauron never sullied them, how late that came in, right? Not until after Galadriel had been invented and we got to Lothlorien, did he finally make that decision and decide that he had to go back and change that bit in the council of Elrond, remember? Um, it makes me wonder When? Can we guess when? What evidence do we have for when the idea that Gandalf is wearing one of the elven rings? When did that come in? What evidence do we have for that? I don't, there was no reference to it, I think, before this. Um, and to see that it gets mentioned that he's bearing Narya the Great, not only at the end of the story, uh, at the Grey Havens, but at the very end of the process, too, while the, 
while the story was being edited in galley proofs. Um, I don't... Um, I don't... I can't think of any... In many partings, Goadriel, Elrond, and Gandalf are being kind of treated like a matched set, right? Um, but it's not made explicit that they're ring-bearers. Um, yeah. Um, no, Yama, the, the flame references in... Uh, on the bridge of Casa Doom are there from the beginning, but there it was just one kind of fire fighting another, and Gandalf's always been associated with fire. Um, I'm not at all convinced. I'm not at all convinced that uh, his words on the bridge in the early draft prove that that's what Tolkien is thinking. It fits with it perfectly well, right? But I am not convinced that that's what Tolkien was thinking when he wrote that. Um, Especially since we don't even know that that's how he was thinking of the Elven Rings at that point. Um, yes, Nancy, I do suspect that is exactly the case. Gandalf's ring is the ring of fire because it's Gandalf's ring, not the other way around. Yes, exactly. Um, Gandalf is associated with fire long before Narya the Great is associated with fire. Right? Narya the Great uh, is only associated right here. Right? Uh, in galley proofs. So, yeah, I don't really know. Um, so, yeah, I. Um, yep. Yeah. We'd have to go back and look at this, the other references um, to. Uh, yeah, Tim, I agree. the The covers, the 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 illustration, the cover illustration with the three rings surrounding the one ring, um, yeah, that's 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 later than this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'd have to go back through. I, I get, yeah, don't worry, Yana, I'm not going to do it right now. Um, but I'd be interested to see if anybody can come up with something, um, because I don't think there's any. I can't think off the top of my head, going back in my mind over the things that we've been looking at and reading and discussing from the history of the Lord of the Rings set here. Um, I don't think there's any clear proof that Gandalf has the, a ring of one of the three Elvish rings before now. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I suspect it was a sudden discovery here, Kate, that he discovers that Gandalf was a ring bearer all along. Um, but, uh, hadn't known about it earlier. Anyway, okay. All right. This brings us through, uh, these things I want that Greyhaven's chapter, of course, was, uh, much closer to the published version, though, again, in the ways that I described with, uh, uh, it's the things that are similar are changed in context greatly by the changing of the scouring of the Shire and the diminishment of Frodo's warrior glory. Um, next time. We will look at what is called the epilogue, the unpublished epilogue of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, uh, we will... Um, yeah, so we'll we'll talk about that next time. I, I have no ambitions of going on. We won't start the um, 
what's it called? The the Notion Club papers next week. Uh, we'll save that for the week after. We'll so we'll spend next week on the epilogue uh, and and think if you have. Uh, questions, other issues you guys wanted to talk about, because this is our, for now, farewell to the history of the Lord of the Rings as well. Um, so we'll see. Maybe we'll have some time for other questions next time. I don't know. It'll depend on uh, how things go with our discussion of the epilogue. Uh, but then we'll definitely plan to begin the Notion Club papers uh, the week after. All right. Um, so that puts, puts us officially a week behind our published reading schedule, but that's all right. Okay. Very good, everybody. Thank you, uh, and I'll see you guys next week. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.